Section 28 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Linebarger. Section 28. Chapter 16a. Research, Development, and the Future. Part 1. Psychological Warfare is part of civilization civilization no matter how one defines it is not a static thing it is an immense fermenting active often turbulent composite of the whys and hows of the way men and women think and behave the short-run factors in a civilization are often as important as the long-run ones though the united states from eighteen sixty to nineteen sixty has been a steady part of the west european predominantly christian civilization the united states has undergone immense changes of fashion belief appetite preference and behavior with any changing developing civilization war may seem like a very static term so that the civil war and the war of the western powers against germany of nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five may to some degree seem comparable phenomena they are comparable but only within sharp limits the meaning of war nowhere is the transitoriness and changeability of modern civilization more evident than in the significance which intelligent men and women attach to the term war war was noble in eighteen sixty one through sixty five but in nineteen forty one through forty five it was noble only for the most perfunctory and most hollow oratory push the contrast farther psychological warfare was an unknown element in eighteen sixty one through sixty five by nineteen forty one through forty five it had become fashionable one can seriously doubt that president lincoln ever worried about northern citizens becoming un-american under that rubric though he had plenty of traitors to worry him the years nineteen forty five through fifty three were momentous a whole string of new ideas new terms and new behavior patterns appeared within the u s a in a mere eight years what the next twenty years will bring is deeply uncertain war is coming to mean the effectuation or prevention of revolution not the half-savage half-courteous armed conflict of sovereign nations war is getting to be chronic again war between entirely comparable states such as the united states and canada mexico and cuba indonesia and india iraq and saudi arabia or any similar combination is getting to be more and more unthinkable war between ideologically dissimilar states such as north korea and south korea communist china and nationalist china viet minh and vietnam ussr and usa is getting to be virtual normality research into tension it is true of all people that they solve particular problems in many cases some time after the occasion for solving the problem has passed what is called decision in government politics and in personal affairs is very often not the selection of one very real course of action as against another equally real course of action but the confirmation of a commitment already made if this is true of everyday life it is even more true of scholars and experts one of the disabilities of our time in the field of the social and psychological sciences and the humanities lies in the fact that although government officials recognize problems some months or years after they have arisen and finally attempt to deal with them scholars frequently get around to problems decades after any practical occasion for decision has passed nowhere is this more evident than in the discussion of tensions as a cause of war tensions certainly contributed very much to the outbreak of war in nineteen fourteen it is possible that the tensions and hostilities of europe in the nineteen thirties 
which allowed fascism and communism to become threatening and powerful also contributed in the end to the outbreak of war in 1939 it is difficult however to suppose that the coming of war in september 1939 was itself the result of tension except as a very remote and indirect cause this author believes that tension leads to a perpetuation of a kind of civilization in which wars are possible but cannot persuade himself that an additional factor of tension within civilization as we know it can be an immediate cause of war research into tensions has been carried fairly far it may be that the wartime role of tension can be ascertained by scientific methods so that the psychological warfare of power a can cause so much more tension than power b either among the elite or among the general population that power b cannot further continue the war alternatively it is imaginable that power a may be able to relax tension so sharply among the elite or broad population of power b that power b's potentiality for war or decision to wage war can be postponed for purposes of research it seems worthwhile to suggest that tension appears to be highly prevalent in the two most powerful military civilizations on earth today the ussr and its satellites on the one hand and the cluster of western powers on the other tension appears to be caused by the complexity of everyday life the demands made upon the psychophysiological organization of each individual human being by the technological facilities available and through the relief offered within each civilization by the opportunity to discharge hatred against members of the other civilization instead of recognizing self-hatred for the very real problem which it is in other terms it is tough to be modern the difficulty of being modern makes it easy for individuals to be restless and anxious restlessness and anxiety lead to fear fear converts freely into hate hate very easily takes on political form political hate assists in the creation of real threats such as the atomic bomb and guided missiles which are not imaginary threats at all the reality of the threats seems to confirm the reality of the hate which led to it thus perpetuating a cycle of insecurity fear hate armament insecurity fear and on around the circle again and again revolutionary possibilities in psychology it is possible but by no means probable that the rapid development of psychological and related sciences in the western world may provide whole new answers to the threats which surround modern americans including the supreme answer of peace as an alternative to war or the secondary answer of victory in the event of war nothing in the existing academic literature on the subject of psychology of war the psychiatry of modern mass behavior the psychology or psychiatry of present-day power politics justifies the inference that an applicable solution to our problems is at all near the problems are almost all aspects of our entire lives and one cannot solve life like a delphic riddle or a single scientific experiment it would be unwise of the u s military and political leaders to overlook developing strengths within american everyday talk and thinking whether academic or popular too specific a concentration on the problem of winning a war may cause a leader or his expert consultants to concentrate on solutions derived from past experience therewith leading him to miss new and different solutions which might be offered by his own time changes need not always be thought of as weaknesses which they are if past criteria are retained as absolute standards men born in the period nineteen ten through twenty may have endowments which are not commonly found among men born in the period nineteen thirty to forty yet it is entirely possible that the generation born during nineteen thirty to forty 
may have capacities and resistances which the older generation does not altogether appreciate apply this concept to communism communism loses strength every day that it exists each day deprives it of novelty each day makes it a littler more familiar each day makes its leaders one day older if americans can learn how to be flexible and imaginative and to understand themselves as they really are they might find that the real american appeal to the youth of the world would be much greater than the communist appeal it was unfortunately characteristic of the united states in the early nineteen fifties of the cold war that u s propaganda was based on ideals and standards older than the ideals and standards competitively presented by the communists and that therefore in many parts of the world the struggle between americans and communists appeared to be a struggle on our side of the old against the young nothing could be farther from the truth the united states army in korea in nineteen fifty through fifty three was one of the most revolutionary armies in history an army dedicated to non-victory pledging an allegiance to a shadowy world government of the united nations behind the practical reality of the government of the united states perhaps never before in many centuries have men fought so matter-of-factly so calmly so reasonably they fought well and did not need to be jazzed up with the hashish of making the world safe for democracy or establishing the four freedoms the temper of the u s forces in korea in 1951 was demonstrated by a reserve sergeant who scarcely knew he was in the reserves until he was on a boat bound for pusan he was a practical man anxious to get home but willing to do his share in this war as long as he had to he was given the assignment of testing the voice plane of u s headquarters at tegu the loudspeaker was not working quite right and he was instructed to test the plane at five hundred one thousand and one thousand five hundred feet the plane flew low over u s headquarters the roar of the engines almost deafened everyone within the building yet even above the roar of the engines there could be heard the bone-chilling hum of the silent loudspeaker an immense magnification of the noise one hears from a radio set which is turned on without being tuned to a station everyone expected the sergeant to say this is the eusak voice plane testing uh one uh two three instead the immense voice came through clearly through brick plaster and wood through air and trees it must have reached four miles the gigantic voice of the sergeant seemed to roar over half of south korea as he said why don't you imperialist sons of bitches go back to wall street where you belong it was said that fifty colonels grabbed for their phones simultaneously but the purely american gimmick to the whole story lay in the fact that the sergeant was not punished no damage was done the americans thought their enemies were funny or silly we had shown that we were not afraid of communist ideas several south koreans told the author that they regarded the americans as inscrutable people indeed the development of modern civilization is certain to have developments in war both as to the purpose of war and as to the modes of war it seems likely that in the face of the supreme danger of atomic and thermonuclear weapons nations will resort more and more to small wars and semi-war operations which will offer the opportunity of strategic advantage without the cataclysmic danger of a world-wide showdown in a very hush-hush way the u s army is looking into the possibilities of small and irregular kinds of war security regulations prohibit the author from discussing some of the interesting new developments in this field national research and development programs the united states government considered as a whole has developed a very adequate scientific research program 
most of this is quite properly keyed to the physical and mechanical sciences in which the most tangible results are obtained substantial strides are being made in the medical and allied fields some research is however being carried out in the fields pertaining to psychological warfare these are worth describing but it must be remembered that research on psi-war may not affect psi-war itself as much as research in other fields which by changing the character of war will change psi-war too within the general research field two basic approaches have been recognized by the u s army as being distinct from one another developmental research and operations research developmental research consists of that research which creates new weapons new methods of war new devices or procedures doing so by digging through modern science investigating its applicability to military problems and then advancing the frontier of science when necessary in the military interest the goals of operations research are more modest and in some respects more provocative operations research takes operations as they exist and re-examines them from beginning to end to discover how much of each operation is scientifically pertinent to its stated goal what economies modifications or changes might be introduced and how the operation might be improved developmental research in war at the time of the close of the nineteen fifty through fifty three phase of korean hostilities the war being conducted by the united states army in korea showed little sign of having been influenced by developmental research into this field of activity the leaflets were not better than the leaflets of world war ii nor even very different because of the peculiar political limitations of the war radio program was not as good as the performance of a b s i e under eisenhower the tactical use of loudspeakers had shown a very marked improvement over world war ii standards but to a non-engineer such as the present writer neither the communist loudspeakers nor our own seemed strikingly better or different developmental research had a great deal to offer but the gap between initial scientific advance and practical military application appeared to be too broad to warrant the assumption that the research had transformed the u s war program operations research in korea operations research sometimes slangily called opsearch was applied to the korean war with highly uneven results among other things army officers in the war field showed early in the korean war that land forces possessed tactical opportunities which combat propaganda could exploit very effectually various experiments were tried none of them so decisive as to affect the outcome of the war but some of them of real tactical value and others of great importance in obtaining chinese prisoners one of the points examined was surrender as a process surrendering does not depend upon the disposition of the individual enemy soldier to say yes or no to the war as a whole he could say no a thousand times and still be on the other side shooting at us the actual physical process of surrender is an elaborate one consisting of the psychological processes of getting ready to give up on the other side the physical capacity to surrender when the opportunity for getting captured presents itself and the alternative more difficult process of deliberately leaving the other side and getting to our side alive in nineteen fifty one and nineteen fifty two there were considerable developments along this line americans learned much about how to teach enemy soldiers to surrender late in nineteen fifty two and early in nineteen fifty three the front had become so static that it took extraordinary heroism for soldiers outside of a tiny minority engaged in reconnaissance patrols to get away from their own side and surrender to the enemy without being killed by their friends as deserters or by the enemy as sneak attackers the u s public did not realize that throughout the korean war the communists russian 
North Korean, and Chinese, enjoyed a distinct radio advantage over the UN side, both as to funds available for programs and as to number of station hours on the air. The language gap between the Americans and Chinese was so extreme that it was hard for Americans to realize that the Chinese broadcasts covered wider audiences and covered them better than did our own. American restraint in this field may have been dictated in part by the fact that the war was a limited war, consisting of combat only with those armed Chinese communists on the North Korean territory, but not with armed Chinese communists elsewhere in the Far East. Philosophy and Propaganda Development in terms of specific literature of Psy War, it is difficult to find many contributions of professional philosophers to Psy War since the end of World War II. This is curious in view of the communist propagation of philosophy, no matter how perverted its form, as a major weapon. The American philosopher, Dr. George Morgan, who became a career diplomat, was simultaneously a Soviet-area expert and a key figure in the Psychological Strategy Board. There were not many others like him. Philosophy offers an opportunity for the re-examination of cultural values. The indoctrination of those professors who will teach the teachers of the generation after next will influence the capacity of future Americans to have a worldview which will give them the utmost opportunities for action in the military field while retaining as far as possible the blessings of U.S. civilian civilization. That U.S. civilization is still civilian and not military is, of course, beyond cavil. The William Jackson Committee was a voice crying in the wilderness when it asked for new terms and new ideas against which to set U.S. propaganda operations in the world of modern strategy. Philosophers may have had the capacity for finding some of the answers, but philosophers, of all people, do not like to be jostled or hurried. The author has never heard of a philosopher employed on a confidential basis by the United States government to think through the historical and cultural rationale of a U.S. military victory for the future. Writers such as F.S.C. Northrop and Eric Fromm, to name only two sharply contrasting personalities, have written books which possess high significance for the international propaganda field. The connection appears, however, to be tangential. Literary Contributions Almost all the best propagandists of almost all modern powers have been, to a greater or less degree, literary personalities. The artistic and cultural aspect of writing is readily converted to propaganda usage. Elmer Davis is a novelist as well as a commentator. Robert Sherwood is one of America's most distinguished playwrights. Benito Mussolini wrote a bad novel. Mousy Tung is a poet and philosopher, as well as a Communist Party boss. Down among the workers in the field, such American novelists as James Gould Cousins, Pat Frank, Jerome Weidman, and Murray Dyer have worked on U.S. psychological warfare. Though literary men have converted their writing to propaganda purposes, few of them have gone on to define the characteristics of a specific conversionary literature or to compile canons of literary style applicable to the propaganda field. The contributions may lie in the future. The Social Sciences The American Association of Public Opinion Research AAOPR, is the professional league of U.S. propagandists and analysts of public opinion. Its quarterly, Public Opinion, is the key journal in the field. The members of this association are drawn both from the social sciences and from the psychological sciences, ranging from such practical operatives as Dr. George Gallup and Elmo Roper to austere theorists like Professors Nathan Leitz and Hadley Cantrell. A good argument can be presented to the effect that the skills brought from the social science into the propaganda field are more valuable 
Once they are employed full-time in that field, then an attempt to apply political science, or sociology, or economics, each as an individual compartment, to the field of propaganda. There is still no book available with the title The Politics of Knowledge, even though the reception, control, prohibition, and dissemination of knowledge is a major factor in all modern governmental processes, both in and out of the propaganda field. Psychology and Related Sciences There has been an immense amount of work done by psychologists, much of it classified, on the field of propaganda. Some of this work is refreshing in the extreme, and should provide nasty surprises for the communists in a major war. Other parts are restatements which, if translated into operations, might or might not prove feasible with the kind of army we Americans have or are likely to have. One of the most conspicuous developments since World War II has been the application by psychologists, sociologists, and persons in related field of quantifying techniques. The introduction of rigorous scientific requirements of number into the attempted reportage of propaganda behavior or propaganda results is having a significant effect. Quantification may not obtain everything which its devotees claim for it. There is a wide area of human behavior which is significant to the ordinary person, or even to the expert in descriptive terms, and which loses much of its significance if the descriptive and elusive terms are replaced by measurements, tables, and graphs. There is, however, no danger that quantification will replace description as the sole tool of research in the propaganda field. What quantification does do is develop a common area of discussion between propagandists and non-propagandists. In many instances, quantification can demonstrate results where allegations of failure or of success would have nothing more than personal authority to support them. Within our own particular kind of civilization, quantification has a special appeal because of the American trust in engineering and in numbers. The conclusions of the Kinsey reports on men and on women seem much more authoritative to the ordinary man because they are presented with an ample garniture of numbers, even though Havelock Ellis's pioneer works in the psychology and behavior patterns of Western sex life may have been much more tangible and much more revolutionary in their time. End of section 28. Recording by Olivia.